while some people were speaking about how the temple was adorned with costly stones and votive offerings, Jesus said, all that you see here, the days will come when there will not be left a stone upon another stone that will not be thrown down. Then they asked him, teacher, when will this happen? And what sign will there be when all these things are about to happen? He answered, see that you not be deceived, for many will come in my name saying, I am he, and the time has come. Do not follow them. When you hear of wars and insurrections, do not be terrified, for such things must happen first, but it will not immediately be the end. Then he said to them, nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be powerful earthquakes, famines and plagues from place to place, and awesome sights and mighty signs will come from the sky. Before all this happens, however, they will seize and persecute you. They will hand you over to the synagogues and to prisons, and they will have you led before kings and governors because of my name. It will lead to your giving testimony. Remember, you are not to prepare your defense beforehand, for I myself shall give you a wisdom in speaking that all your adversaries will be powerless to resist or refute. You will even be handed over by parents, brothers, relatives, and friends, and they will put some of you to death. You will be hated by all because of my name, but not a hair on your head will be destroyed. By your perseverance, you will secure your lives. Gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, Lord Jesus Christ. So we are coming to the end of time. Next week, we celebrate the Feast of Christ the King, which is the last Sunday of the liturgical year. So in terms of the, the rhythm of how the church lives its life, uh, we are looking very much towards the end time. So next Sunday, we, we celebrate the Feast of Christ the King when Jesus comes the second time in glory uh, to establish his reign. So the weeks leading up to the Feast of Christ the King, our readings take on a very... Uh, Kind of apocalyptic note. Right, we start looking towards the end. Uh, we start getting a lot of, in the last maybe month, six weeks of the year, we start getting a lot of warnings, a lot of talk about judgment. Right? Uh, our readings today start off with the prophet Malachi. And by choosing this uh, for this reading, uh, the church really puts us in the mindset of the coming judgment. It reminds us to look forward to the, to the end of time. And what does Malachi say? This is the day is coming blazing like an oven when all the proud and all evildoers will be stubble and the day that is coming will set them on fire, leaving them neither root nor branch. But for you who fear my name, 
There will arise the sun of justice with its healing rays. Right, so the church puts us with the words of this prophet in mind of that, that fullness of time in which justice will be established. Right? And the wicked will be burned up. They will be destroyed. Uh, and the righteous will receive the, the healing love of God and be admitted to his kingdom and his joy. So this is the mindset the church puts us in going into the gospel. And the gospel, Jesus is asked, or he responds to the people who are speaking about the temple, or the physical building of the temple. And they're essentially discussing temple renovations. They're talking about all the stones and the expensive adornments with which the temple is decorated. And he says something very strange to them. He says, the day is coming when there will not be one stone left upon another of, this, of all that you see here. And they ask him, well, what's gonna, uh, what, are the, what signs can we look for? What's going to happen before that happens? And, you know, it, seemed, it must have seemed like Jesus was speaking very apocalyptically about the destruction of the temple because the temple really was the thing for the Jews. And to talk about its destruction would be very much the way we, to hear that would be very much the way we hear, we, we feel when we hear about Revelation, right? Uh, by the, the end times and uh, cataclysmic events that seem to indicate the, the world is ending. Of course, we know that literally Jesus' words came true about 40 years later. Literally, the temple was destroyed by the Romans and it was never rebuilt. And part of the reason for that is, uh, as we understand theologically, once Jesus entered into his Paschal, uh, into the Paschal mystery, once he died and then rose from the dead, the temple, the building where the sacrifices were offered became obsolete. In terms of salvation history, it did not matter anymore. And so when Jesus talks about the destruction of the temple, he's not really talking about the end of time. But then he moves on in response to their questions about what's going to happen before the end. He essentially forecasts the life of the, the new temple, right? The living body of Christ. He's going to talk about what's going to happen to that temple, his living body, before the end time comes. He's essentially forecasting the life of the church as it's been lived for the last 2,000 years, as it will live until he does come again in glory. And what does he predict? He predicts division, conflict, persecution, suffering. If anyone undergoes some sort of trial and has their faith shaken because of it, in all honesty, we have to say that uh, perhaps that person never really internalized what the gospel is actually about. Because in no way does Jesus promise us an easy life. In no way does he say that our faith is going to uh, prevent suffering from coming to us. He actually says, you're, you're going to suffer more than others for my name. Unless you can take up your cross every day, Unless you can despise your family and your homes uh, to have a preferential love for me, unless you can follow me into suffering and sometimes into death, then you can't be my disciple. You can't go where I'm going. Right? That's what the Lord promises us. He promises us suffering and travail uh, for each of us and for his whole body of Christ. Now, why does the church undergo so much suffering in the world? Why is the church so attacked, so persecuted, so undermined? Well, I think there's, there's at least two reasons. One's very supernatural, one's very natural, right? On the supernatural plane, the reason the church will always be under attack in this world 
is that the devil is the prince of this world, and he is real. And the Catholic Church is always going to matter, right? Sometimes I, sometimes I wonder, you know, it, we all have these dialogues with ourselves, I think, in our heads, and I, I wonder sometimes why people who don't believe what we believe even care what we teach. But then I remember that for nobody ever can the Catholic Church ever be irrelevant. We can never simply be ignored because God has written, uh, he's made our hearts for himself, he's written the natural law into our hearts, and when the, when the church preaches, it is Jesus speaking. And the word is something that provokes a response from us. And our response to that word is never, never a morally neutral reality. The church is the continued presence of God in the world. It's the continued presence of Jesus Christ even today. And so it's never going to be irrelevant. And it's always going to be hated by our, by our enemy. And just like the Lord works through people... So does Satan work through people. And so uh, as long as we're in this world, the church is always going to be attacked by the evil one. Right? That's our supernatural reason. Now, how does he attack us? Well, one of the ways, and I, I think given a, giving a spiritual reading of the gospel here, we can see that he talks about division. Right? He speaks about nation rising against nation, kingdom against kingdom. But I think on a, a spiritual reading, we can also talk about the body of Christ throughout time suffering internal division. This is one of the, the, the great ways that Satan attacks the church. No emperor in history has ever done more damage to the body of Christ than evil shepherds within the church. No persecution of any government or any other religious group or what have you ever in the history of the church has done more damage, more destruction to the body of Christ than false teachings and internal division. So when we look at the ways that the, the church gets attacked and suffers, one of the reasons we talk about division is because the devil does much more work and much more effective work by messing with the church from the inside than by any persecution that comes from without. In fact, the church historically typically grows under persecution because uh, suffering has a way of kind of bringing things to a focus uh, that we don't necessarily have when we have abundance. Right? When we really like to suffer for our faith, that has a way of, of bringing things to a focus. And so the church actually thrives under persecution. So the, the most work that the devil does is by internal division. Okay? Uh, a second reason, a more natural reason why I think the church is always going to be hated. And by the way, when I say church, I don't just mean the institution, right, the hierarchy. I mean all of us all of us who are members of the body of Christ, all of us who bear the name of Christian, why we're always going to be hated for the sake of his name is because of conscience. Now, what I mean by that is this. Uh, all of us at various times in our life, hopefully often, hopefully often, all of us are, uh, 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 our consciences are afflicted. This happened to me just yesterday. I had, you know, the, the Holy Spirit moved me and... I realized there was a situation that I was being very selfish. And my conscience, the Holy Spirit speaking through my conscience, accused me of selfishness. Now, do you think that was a pleasant realization? Nobody wants to be called selfish, least of all by their own conscience. It's painful when our conscience accuses us. And because it's painful, we really can't live, uh, we can't just live with the, the disintegration 
of violating our conscience all the time. So generally speaking, when, when that painful experience of being accused by our conscience happens, we, ha we either uh, change, which is conversion. We say, okay, I need to do something different. I need to be less selfish. Or we try to silence our conscience. Now we can scale that up uh, not only from our own experience, and this is not something I learned in any books in seminary. This is something I've learned just through my, my own experience and my interaction with other people. I think when people get really, really offended by something that we say, it's because it does actually afflict their own conscience. Let me give you an example. If somebody tells me, it's a, it's a bad thing, no, nobody wants to be a bigot, right? It's a bad thing to be a bigot. If, somebody's, if somebody says to me, you are a bigot because you don't support same-sex marriage, I don't, I, I'm not going to like the fact that they think I'm a bigot, but am I going to get really angry? Am I going to get really upset and troubled? No, because my conscience is clear. I know what's true. And I know, I know what truth I'm abiding by in my heart, and I know that I'm not a bigot. And you know, I, I, I do wish that you didn't think that way about me, but I'm still going to be able to sleep at night. Right? But if somebody had come to me yesterday and told me, you're being selfish, guess what? I'm probably going to get mad. And I'm going to get mad because what you've said, actually, whether I want to admit it or not, is afflicting my conscience. So here's the second reason why I think the church and every member in it who actually witnesses to the faith, who actually witnesses to the name of Jesus, is always going to be hated. And Jesus doesn't say just, just hated occasionally. He actually says you'll be hated by all for the sake of my name. It's because, essentially, the, the, when we witness to the gospel, when we witness to Jesus Christ, we are forcing a decision on the people who we encounter. When people encounter the word, there is no morally neutral response to that word. When they encounter a witness to that word, there's no morally neutral response to that witness. And when that witness convicts their conscience, there's no morally neutral response to that. Right? All of us at that crisis, that crossroads, we are either going to change, which is painful, and require some courage, or we're gonna lash out against the thing that hurts us. So we have this kind of supernatural cause for the kind of eternal enmity of the church towards the world, why we're never able to just be ignored as irrelevant, why we have to be hated and persecuted. Uh, we also have this, this sort of natural element. And what Jesus tells us today is uh, the, the uncomfortable stance that the church has to take is one of being engaged with the world, but never coming to a false peace with the world. Right? We can't, it, is, it is not a Catholic response. It is not a Christian response to the world to simply say, all right, we're going to take our toys and go home. Right? We're gonna just, we'll form our own little community and just kind of shut the world out. Because the Lord wants us to witness, the Lord wants us to spread the gospel. We need to be reaching out to those who need, who need the gospel, who need the sacraments. So we can't just shut in. But if we are too attached, I guess you could say to the stones of the temple, right? If we're too attached to uh, material prosperity, if we're attached, even, even as a, the church today, even at St. Thomas the Apostle Parish, if we are too attached to how financially successful our church is or, uh, or how, how much, um, the word is, I'm thinking of has escaped me, how much good report our school has, right? If we become too attached to these things, then we maybe start being willing to make uh, false 
peace with the world because we don't want to lose what we have. So that's the, that's the uncomfortable position that the, the church and every member of the church finds itself in. What are some things that happen when we seek a false peace, a false resolution? Well, we, we lose our ability to witness. Right? Two, two really famous examples that I would like to propose to you to think about today, and this is speaking on the institutional level. We'll get to the personal level in a minute. Uh, you know, like a hundred years ago, Catholics really were not able to be, were not able to climb the ladder in society, so to speak. We, we were kind of shut out of the halls of power because the Catholics were mostly immigrants and America's never, I don't know, America's never really been big on immigrants. Uh, mostly immigrants and, and also America's Protestants. They didn't like the fact that we were Catholic. They didn't like the fact that you know, they thought that the Pope was going to be secretly governing the United States. And so Catholics really were excluded from the, the halls of power, so to speak. Well, unfortunately, one of the things that, that commonly happened is we started to compromise our faith because we wanted a seat at the table, right? Uh, maybe one of the best examples of this is before he was elected president, John F. Kennedy gave a, a, a famous speech, it was somewhere in Texas, I don't know if it was Dallas or Houston, but he essentially promised that I will not, my, my Catholic faith is not going to influence how I fulfill this office. Right? And that's the, that's the price many of us have been willing to pay to participate in worldly power. We'll, we'll check our faith at the door. Right? Another example, if you care about education, I invite you to look up when you go home something called the Land O'Lakes Conference. Right, it sounds like butter, but it was a meeting of basically educators, university officials, and they essentially decided, and many, many Catholic universities were involved in this conference, they essentially decided that they did not, that if, if they were gonna be taken seriously and have the prestige that other universities had, that they had to be free of the church's authority. They had to be free to have open, intellectual discourse just like every other university. And so they sort of essentially declared, we can't be bound by things like oaths of fidelity. Right, look, uh, look it up if you're interested, Land O'Lakes, right? These are the things that happen when we seek a false resolution with the culture, when we, when we kind of seek to make an uneasy peace or an, an illegitimate peace with the world around us. And that's why Jesus warns us, if we're gonna be faithful to the gospel, we are always going to, in a sense, be in conflict with the culture. Right? Jesus says, I came not to bring peace, but the sword. And it's not because we want to be jerks. It's not because we want to make people feel bad. It's not because we want to think of ourselves as better than others. It's because of what I've said several times already. The word demands a response from us. And because that the word is always going to be an essentially a judgmental and divisive reality. And that's why at the, at, the full, at the end of time, we are going to have that final judgment where those who receive the word versus those who reject it are separated. Now we've said a lot of things about the institutional church, about what the body of Christ in the, the big sense is going to suffer. What does this mean for you? Well, one of the really beautiful things about the last several decades of the church, and I think this is largely due to the work of the Second Vatican Council, largely due to the work of John Paul II, we have become more keenly aware than ever of the role of the laity in the life of the church. And in case you don't know what laity means, it's you, right? It's the non-priests. Uh, 
we've become much more aware of the role of the lady in the life of the church. That's a, that's a good thing, first of all, in terms of understanding what the church is, uh, but it's also really necessary for the church to be able to respond to the world now because we live in a post-Christian civilization. Right? The new evangelization that John Paul II called for, the reason it's called the new evangelization, he said, we are no longer living in a world where we can assume that everybody is being formed by a Christian mentality. We cannot assume that most of the people we meet have actually heard the gospel. And so a new evangelization, we essentially need to start over again. A new evangelization needs to happen. So maybe five, six hundred years ago, when everybody in your little village was Catholic, maybe you could say that the, the work of, of witnessing and forming religious consciences, maybe that could be left to the priest because everybody had to go to church whether they wanted to or not. But we don't live in that world anymore. Right? The, I, as a priest, I'm ordained a priest at the service of your priesthood. I'm ordained a priest so that, uh, so that you can receive the sacraments, so that you can bear Christ to the world. I only get to speak and minister to the people that actually show up here on Sunday. If you want, to if you want a, a sense of just how many Catholics don't come to church on Sunday, think about Easter Sunday Mass. And think about how much we don't like having to deal with the parking and stuff like that and the overflow masses and recognize that that's the number of people that should be here every Sunday. And that's just the Catholics. That's just the non-practicing Catholics, right? That's not everybody else in the world uh, who the Lord does want to become Catholic, wants to be invited to the church. Well, that work is done through you. And we are in a time right now where your witness is maybe more important than ever because in the eyes of the world, the church has forfeited a ton of its credibility. The institutional church, right, the bishops, the priests, the cardinals, we have in the eyes of the world forfeited a lot of our authority because of wickedness within the church. To many, many people in the world, I'm, I'm neutral, I'm disqualified as a witness or an authority, but you're not. And so as we move forward both liturgically and in life towards the fullness of time, towards the coming of Christ the King, uh, as judge, but also as ruler, uh, let's all work to be more faithful to the gospel, to be more faithful to the work of witness. Uh, let's examine our consciences and ask, uh, am I really willing to part with the stones of the temple? Am I willing to let go of the goods of this world when necessary so that I can remain faithful uh, to my witness to Jesus Christ?